This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Rand Corporation media conference call on the latest developments and mounting tensions between North Korea and the United States, which have been dominating news headlines and appear to have no signs at abating. My name is Korshid Samad, Senior Media Relations Officer for RAND, and I am joined on the phone by my colleague, Lisa Sauters, Media Relations Officer, who is based out of our Santa Monica office. Good morning. Um, we are going to be hearing brief statements from the following RAND researchers, who will then take your questions once the lines have been opened. J.D. Williams is a Senior Defense Policy Researcher at RAND, focusing on national security, intelligence, and military issues. He came to RAND from the National Intelligence Council, where he served as a National Intelligence Officer for military issues, preparing national intelligence assessments on foreign military forces and strategies, ongoing conflicts, weapon systems, and future warfare. Andrew Scobell is a RAND senior political scientist. His research focuses on China, with special attention to China's policy towards the Korean Peninsula and China's relationships with North and South Korea. Bruce Bennett is a RAND senior international defense researcher specializing in Northeast Asian military issues. His research has addressed issues such as future ROK military force requirements, the Korean military balance, counters to North Korean chemical and biological weapons threats in Korea and Japan, dealing with a North Korean collapse, potential Chinese intervention in Korean contingencies, changes in the Northeast Asia security environment, and deterrence of nuclear threats. I am now going to ask J.D. Williams to open with a brief statement. I'd like to say that North Korea represents a serious and growing nuclear threat to the United States and within the region. The two tests of an ICBM range missile last month represent a significant milestone in their in their missile program, unprecedented in you know being able to launch successfully two missiles in quick succession to ranges that hadn't been demonstrated before except with their space launch vehicle. You have probably all seen charts and graphs showing the number of tests that North Korea has conducted under its current leader, which is significantly higher than than his father and grandfather predecessors. But I'd like to point out a couple of things beyond the number of test launches, some other significant aspects of their of their missile program. First, it's the number of systems that they have in development. There are three medium and intermediate range uh, ballistic missile systems that they have under development and have tested. Um, those uh, will constitute a, a regional threat um, and potentially could reach as far as Guam, depending on, on what range they, they have. Um, they have a submarine launch ballistic missile, uh, which is which is in testing. Um, they are testing new and improved short-range and close-range ballistic missiles that, that pose a significant threat uh, to South Korea as well as Japan. And they have up to three ICBMs in development, although they've only tested uh, one, and that was the one that was tested last month. Uh, secondly, uh, they are developing uh, solid fuel uh, for their ballistic missiles. Um, this is a significant improvement over liquid fuel technology. It um, is safer, um, it is more stable, and so the missile can be kept in a ready condition for a longer period of time. And it also enhances the mobility uh, so that they're able to move and hide uh, missiles around uh, more easily when they're solid fuel. And then finally, it's the pace of their testing. Um, again, if you look at the charts and you see not just the numbers, but how frequently and how rapidly they're moving from test to test, 
Um, now, again, there are different missiles under development, so it, it, it can be a little bit misleading. Uh, but in a country with a developed missile program like a Russia or a China or the United States, um, we tend to see, a, you know, a, a much more deliberate pattern where a test can be then assessed, uh, determine what, you know, what corrections or, or differences need to be made, and then you move on to the next one. Um, with a test regime of 12 to 18, usually as a norm before a, a missile system is declared operational. So all of those things indicate both the emphasis, um, the resources, um, and the um, kind of criticality that Kim is putting in behind the system. Now, all of that said, um, they have the North Koreans have not yet demonstrated the capability to deliver a nuclear weapon on an ICBM to the United States. Um, there are usually three or four critical components uh, of a demonstrated capability to do that. The first is a missile. Um, the two tests last month indicate they have a missile that can reach, you know, ICBM range. Um, unclear the exact range of that system, but it could at least get to a, 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 at least a, a notch or a corner of the, of the continental United States. Uh, guidance systems um, that, you know, deliver the missile where you, you want it to be. Um, the technology they have in their shorter range missiles um, indicates they could do that. That does transfer up, um, and for nuclear delivery, um, the precision and guidance is not as critical with a nuclear weapon. Um, a nuclear device that can be miniaturized um, so that it can be um, loaded on top of the missile. Um, we don't know if they've accomplished that. There have been reports uh, from the Japanese and the U.S. intelligence community that they assess that North Korea is there. Rand does not have any particular information about that. But given the amount of time they've had in the testing that they've done on nuclear weapons, it's reasonable to infer that they've made progress on that. Uh, miniaturizing is not easy. Uh, but it is also, you know, something that could be done with, you know, with good um, science and, and technology. Other countries have done that. Um, the last and most critical component is, you know, can the warhead survive um, reentry at ICBM ranges? Um, the forces that that, you know, reentry vehicle or RV would have to take are much greater uh, heat uh, force acceleration um, on an ICBM than other missiles. So it doesn't transfer um, that they can do this with shorter range missiles up to an ICBM. They have not tested any type of warhead at ICBM ranges. And this, you know, among the engineers and scientists that work this, this is probably the most difficult part of the problem to solve, and they haven't demonstrated that yet. So in summary, um, it's likely that they have a nuclear capability for some of their shorter range missiles, and they're clearly making progress um, towards achieving that um, at their, in ICBMs. Uh, but we can't definitively say that the, that they mastered that yet. And I'll turn it over at this point to uh, my colleague, Andrew Scobell. Thank you, J.D. This is Andrew Scobell. I, I want to address two uh, uh, two topics. Uh, one is the inflated rhetoric we've seen in recent weeks and days, and so, uh, and then how China plays in this uh, the, the tensions on the Korean Peninsula. First of all, uh, what is one to make of what seems to be a, a war of words between North Korea and the United States. I think it's important to put things in context. And uh, I think what, what we see on today on the Korean Peninsula is fundamentally different from past decades. Americans, South Koreans, and others have grown used to bombastic threats and over-the-top rhetoric from Pyongyang and repeated missile uh, launches and nuclear tests. 
it's almost becoming normal. And yet the, the current situation uh, we face is anything but. Indeed, as uh, I think it's worth noting, that uh, the previous speaker used the same term that I'm about to use. It's, it's an unprecedented situation in terms of the seriousness of the threat from North Korea. North Korea has a, you know, a no-kidding arsenal of nuclear weapons, and the size of this arsenal is only growing. In terms of the means and the, the range of their delivery system, that's another question, but those also seem to be improving based on what we've seen of their tests in recent months. But I think the point here is, in short, uh, China, uh, North Korea doesn't just uh, articulate alarming intentions. It also increasingly has, seems to possess the capabilities to follow through on these. So in this context, unprecedented rhetoric from the White House and other members of uh, the administration doesn't seem so inappropriate. In fact, I think the rhetoric of the president does register in Pyongyang, and it has been noted in Beijing. In Leninist-style dictatorships like North Korea and China, rhetoric is very important. Words matter and are carefully chosen, and words uttered by the president of the United States are closely scrutinized in both countries. Second, on the question of China, what about China? As I'm sure everyone's aware, China's uh, North Korea's most important economic partner, and technically Beijing is Pyongyang's only ally. Does China want to help deal with the tensions uh, on the Korean Peninsula? I think the answer is, in principle, yes. In practice, that uh, assistance, that help uh, from, from China has clearly been more problematic, more challenging. So how can China help? Well, there, I just want to mention two ways. One, one of course, is to support the sanctions uh, uh, that have been, been imposed on North Korea vigorously and, and in a vigorous and sustained manner. To date, uh, China's enforcement of, uh, of sanctions on North Korea has been, to, to, be, uh, to be honest, spotty and selective. Uh, another way uh, China can help is to facilitate dialogue or negotiations. Indeed, in 2003, China stepped up in a very big way. It uh, organized and hosted the six-party talks. It was a very significant uh, forum um, for addressing uh, tensions on the Korean Peninsula and the nuclear issue in particular. Uh, but of course, those six-party talks were ultimately uh, unsuccessfully. Can China step up again? Potentially, I think, but 2017 is not 2003. Back then, North Korea didn't have a nuclear arsenal. Also, I think it's important uh, to state an obvious point that North Korea needs to be prepared to sit down at the negotiating table. And that's not completely clear whether that's the case uh, right now. So why did China step up in 2003? Uh, in my opinion, China stepped up because it was terrified of the alternatives to not doing so. Now, has China reached that point again in 2017? That's, uh, that's not at all clear. I'd like to turn things over to my colleague Bruce Bennett at this point. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. And, and now we're going to hear from Bruce. I'm also going to talk about two subjects uh, just briefly. First of all, what the other measures are that the United States can take at the current point in time and uh, the viability of the sanctions in terms of dealing with North Korea, which is really part of the first question. Um, if we think about it, the problem we have now is twofold. First, we have to worry about deterring North Korea from ever using these nuclear weapons. But second, we also have to deter their further development of their nuclear weapon and missile program. If North Korea is allowed to continue on and develop, let's say, several hundred nuclear weapons and dozens of intercontinental ballistic missiles, 
that is not going to be an acceptable situation in the Northeast Asia region. It will create a tremendous potential for North Korea to take coercive and other actions that uh, no one wants them to take. So the decision of the administration to put aside the strategic patience notion of basically letting North Korea continue until it gets serious, uh, it's now time to make North Korea serious. The United States and its allies and its partners in, in the region need to be putting pressure on North Korea to deal with this situation, in part because North Korea has apparently concluded that the United States is not going to put all that much serious pressure on the North as part of the ongoing situation. The U.S., because of its light reactions as North Korea has gone through multiple U.S. red lines, uh, the U.S. has lost a great deal of its credibility with Pyongyang and uh, needs to reestablish it. Part of the rhetoric by the U.S. Uh, White House has been in part helping to reestablish that credibility and intent to take action. Um, now, there's been considerable discussion of military options. It should be very clear that there is no such thing as a surgical strike against the North Korean nuclear capabilities. Far too many facilities for a strike on one or two locations to make any significant difference. Um, and North Korea would likely retaliate in a way that could easily escalate to major war if any kind of attack is carried out against the North. There are some military options like uh, threatening to shoot down North Korean missiles when they're tested, uh, but attacks on North Korea are probably not a viable alternative. Uh, we followed sanctions. The sanctions are becoming stronger. And at least um, the stories I'm hearing from uh, outsiders and from defectors from North Korea, some of the sanctions are starting to have important effects on the regime uh, that could put some pressure on it. But I think the other thing that we have underestimated is the importance of political action, of convincing Kim Jong-un that when he takes action, there are things that we can do to counter his actions. Deterrence is all about convincing him that the costs of his actions are greater than the benefits he hopes to t obtain. And he does his missile and nuclear tests, developing those programs, in part heavily for uh, internal political purposes. This is a very weak regime that has a weak leader, and so he has to demonstrate his empowerment, and these missile and nuclear tests are part of his demonstration of that. We have to convince him that his continued process of doing that is not going to help him, that it's going to cost him, and there are actions we could be taking with information operations and other activities to convince him that there really is a serious price to pay by this continued behavior. All of this is to say that we need to take a little bit of all of these things and combine them together in order to convince Kim Jong-un that he does need to negotiate. If he thinks that we're coming as beggars to negotiations, he's not going to give us very much. But if he is convinced that there is a cost to pay for his bad behavior, then negotiations have a chance of accomplishing the objectives that we're looking for. And that's where the sanctions part fit in. The sanctions do appear to be having some effect. 
They aren't going to stop the nuclear and missile program themselves, but they can contribute to that, and that's important. And I'll halt there and uh, turn it over to questions. Thank you very much, Bruce. Appreciate the statements by all of our participants today. And our first question comes from Jeff Daniels with CNBC. Please proceed with your question. Um, so what I hear you saying um, is basically that the president's, you know, fire and fury comments and his doubling down was a good thing. Uh, also, what's the importance now of back-channel diplomacy? Has it worked with North Korea before? And what is the challenge of doing it today with them? This is Andrew Scoveller. As far as uh, whether it's a good thing, it's not completely clear. The point I was trying to make in my opening comments was that this is an unprecedented situation and that the kind of rhetoric we've seen from the president underscores that and, and the signals, I think, and signals to Pyongyang and also Beijing that the U.S. takes the current situation extremely seriously. And so it's not normal. And to that extent, it, it's it's very useful. As far as uh, diplomatic interactions, there is a lot of, you know, there has been historically been uh, back-channel dialogues between the U.S. and North Korea. And I think that uh, that continues. And certainly the Secretary of State uh, indicated that behind-the-scenes diplomatic activity was continuing. So it, it's not the kind of thing that goes on in public. It's not the kind of thing that tends to be widely publicized. But it does happen, and it is happening, and we'll just have to wait and see what the results are. Has it worked before, though? Yes, it has. I mean, in terms of, depends how you define, has it worked uh, or success? If it's that it's led to agreements, that it's averted uh, conflict, I think the answer would be yes. Have those agreements always uh, uh, been lived up to? No. So certainly it's a, it's, it's a mixed uh, it's, it's a mixed record, but I think most experts would say, you know, the, the military alternative uh, is, uh, is certainly shouldn't be off the table. But it should 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 be the very last resort because it, the, the specter of, of a very serious conflict is uh, is not a very uh, not not an attractive alternative. And this is Bruce okay. Bennett. It, it's also a case that that we have to look at the situation and say um, that North Korea's got to be convinced that it's in their interest to negotiate um, and to negotiate seriously. Uh, historically, in many cases, they felt that uh, that negotiation was really the beginning, that the end of a negotiation was the beginning of the next negotiation. And so what they tried to do is to posture themselves to be able to break out on the one hand and to be able to gain as many advantages as they could the next time, because they've sensed that there was not a whole lot that the United States was prepared to do that would really hurt them. Um, they've got to be convinced otherwise, <clears throat> and the rhetoric and the U.S. actions in preparation now are starting, I think, to do that, and those are important changes. Well, thank you, Andrew and Bruce. Do we have anyone else on the line who would like to pose a question? Yes, our next question comes from line of James Drew with Aviation Week. Please proceed with your question. Um, one thing I've been thinking about is, is the proliferation of the F-35 uh, stealth combat jet um, around the Korean Peninsula. Um, North Korea has not invested much at all in the interceptors and probably finds itself very much squeezed at the moment with the Marine Corps F-35s going over there 
followed by about 40 jets in being bought by South Korea, another 40 being bought by Japan, and then the U.S. deploying its own squadrons there, both through the Marine Corps, um, the Air Force, and also uh, from the carrier decks. This presents a serious challenge for a nation that pretty much um, can't defend itself against air threats. Do you think that part of the equation of North Korea setting this kind of nuclear mouse mouse trap that says try anything and, and we'll snap the uh, we'll snap the nukes out? This is JD Williams. Um, I think from the North Korean perspective, even you know even given some of the regime's perceptions, I think they understand that that they've got a significant conventional disadvantage um, with the, their armed forces, particularly with with the you know in the aviation. Um, and, and aviation side of the house. So if you look at kind of the, the approaches that North Korea has taken, and not just under the current leader, but before, um, they are looking at, you know, let's call it the asymmetric ways of offsetting um, the fact that they're falling farther and farther behind in their conventional capabilities. So missiles, especially land attack missiles that are mobile, that can be hidden to avoid that that air threat. Um, special forces um, is another thing they've invested in. Um, so I, I think they're aware of they have fallen behind and continue to fall farther behind in, in most measures of conventional war fighting. And they are looking at ways to provide that deterrent that says, you know, pretty much what you said is, you know, even if you, you know, even if the South Korea or the United States or a coalition applies conventional war fighting against them, they will have the capability to inflict significant and in the future or, or maybe now catastrophic damage in the event that somebody tries to attack them. So the F-35s, you know, and newer fighter systems just, you know, add to that trend. But I, I don't think we could call that any kind of direct driver. It's just a continuation of a trend that's been there for a while. And there is a risk, this is Bruce Bennett, there is a risk associated with all of this. Um, North Korea can't take on those aircraft in the air. They can't take them on very well with surface-to-air capabilities. So it pushes them to say, we've got to take those aircraft on when they're on the ground. Um, that drives them into thinking about the use of uh missiles and potentially nuclear weapons or other payloads against the key airfields where those aircraft would likely be located in order to try to neutralize that threat. So the driver starts to go towards a destabilizing uh, crisis situation where both sides have a lot of incentives to, oper to, to go first the North to try to neutralize the threat before it can be launched against them, and the U.S. and South Korea to try to eliminate the North Korean missile and nuclear threat before it can be launched against us. Uh, that's a part of the difficulty that we face uh, as we move to the future. Thank you, J.D. and, and Bruce. Um, do we have someone else that might have a question on online? Yes, the next question comes by Wilson Brissett from Air Force Magazine. Good morning. Thanks for doing this call. Uh, my question is uh, probably best for J.D. Williams, but uh, um, what are you watching in terms of the next coming uh, technological development uh, in North Korea's program? What do you think will be is likely to be demonstrated next, and what and how will it change? Uh, assessments of the threat as it grows. Uh, yeah, so this is JD. Um, 
I think what is both surprising and concerning is, is the number of systems that they have under development and the pace at which they are um, at trying to adv- advance them. So I, I'm not sure that I would say we're looking for any um, or expecting to see now, expecting to see anything new. Uh, what, um, you know, if I was in their missile program, what I would be looking to do um, is to, you know, use a test regime to continue to evaluate and ensure that the the systems that are you know that are are being tested can perform with reliability um, that we put them into you know put them into into service so um, the submarine launch ballistic missile uh, probably needs some some work um, as well as the, the launch platform itself the, the launch platform they have is is pretty much just the test you know test submarine um, they need to build an actual submarine to carry the missile. Um, the you know both the intermediate range and the and the ICBMs um, you know probably you know need some more testing. Um, and then as I said in my opening remarks, the most critical component on the ICBM side um, is to develop um, and show that they have a, a reentry vehicle that could deliver um, the nuclear warhead. Um, so if they're, you know, approaching this as other countries have, which is um, a, a rational um, approach to developing and, and ensuring that your capabilities will work as, as they're intended to, that's what I would expect to see. On the other hand, you could see, you know, you could easily see them um, start to shut down the testing program, you know, indicating, hey, we've proven that we can do this. We've given you enough to think about, and you know, from their perspective, um, the, the, they're going to get the deterrent effect. The, potentially, they're going to get the deterrent effect, whether they continue to test it or not. Because from the U.S. perspective, given what they've shown so far, you have to take the threat seriously, and you have to um, consider um, that even though they haven't demonstrated the full capability, um, the possibility exists that it's there. And you know, with nuclear weapons, you just you can't. You can't afford not to take it seriously. So, um, more, most realistically, we'll see a continuation of the, of the test program, um, with an emphasis on an intermediate range missile that'll work, an ICBM that'll work, and the submarine launch missile. Um, perhaps more movement. If there's something new, um, it would maybe a solid fuel ICBM, another solid fuel IRBM. Um, the kind of alternative hypothesis is that he backs off on a test program and just says, okay, I've got what I need. You, you live with it. You have to counter it and you have to take it into consideration. Bruce Bennett again. I would say the key thing that I would be uh, looking for really two, uh, in the short term. Number one, um, pretty clear that the ICBMs fired in July 4th and July 28th don't have enough range to deliver the likely size of a North Korean nuclear weapon, uh, which is bigger than the payload that they appear to have carried, uh, according to several different analyses that I've seen. Uh, so I would be looking for them to try maybe an updated second-stage booster, something like that to demonstrate greater range that could actually deliver a, a nuclear weapon to the U.S., Second thing I'd be looking for, they did test in May their KN-06, their advanced uh, uh, surface-to-air missile capability. I think they're going to want to put some pressure onto that, uh, directly related to the previous question about F-35s. Uh, 
they're going to want to illustrate that they're improving their surface-to-air missile capabilities and leave us with some uncertainties about our abilities to operate in their environment. Thank you, J.D. and Bruce. Do we have anybody else on the line who'd like to pose a question? Yes, the next question comes line of Thomas Risen with Aerospace America. Please proceed with your question. Good morning. Uh, thank you for the call. Um, I'm wondering about the technical and logistical challenges of boost phase missile defense, including getting something that could fly near enough North Korea to shoot a missile while still taking off. Um, are, uh, what are some of those challenges that, you know, to fill the boost phase defense and are, in the meantime, are terminal phase countermeasures like FAD safe enough to protect places like Guam before a boost phase, uh, countermeasure can be made? Yeah, this is Bruce Bennett. Um, on the Guam question, let me start with that. Uh, absolutely, you would want FAD there on Guam, but with any missile defense system, you have some potentials that uh, it may not work. I mean, ballist, uh, the ballistic missile defense technology is far more complex than cell phones, and yet we do know that some cell phones still burn up after extensive testing. Uh, so while you would depend upon that, you would probably also want to have a couple of Aegis ships uh, deployed in the area around Guam so that they could intercept any kind of missile coming in when it's still in, in when it's still outside the atmosphere and can be shot then. Uh, and then the second phase would be a THAAD defense if somehow the, uh, the Aegis system failed to shoot down the missile, the warheads basically coming in. So you'd put a, a couple of layers of defense there. You'd still prefer boost phase, but the problem with boost phase right now is that North Korea has been want launching from its west coast or from the center of the country fairly regularly. To intercept in those areas, our interceptors would have to overfly North Korean territory. And if they missed, there's some chance that they could wind up in North Korean territory and be treated as an attack on North Korea. So there's some risk with that in boost phase. If we had a laser-based system like the old airborne laser, that would reduce some of that risk. Um, if you intercept during boost phase also, given those uh, parameters, you basically put the destroyed missile down on top of North Korea, which is not going to make the North very happy and potentially lead to responses as well. Do we have anybody else on the line who'd like to pose a question? Yes, the next question comes from line of Stuart Leavenworth with Miami Herald. Please proceed with your question. Thanks for organizing this call. Um, my questions are both about the upcoming military exercises that South Korea and the U.S. will be holding uh, next week. Um, first of all, uh, in, in, during past exercises, North Korea has done things like fire off missiles. Do you expect – what kind of response do you expect from North Korea during – this year's exercises. And secondly, both North Korea and China have wanted um, the U.S. and South Korea to stop these exercises uh, as a condition for talks going forward. Um, should the U.S. and South Korea explore that? Or, and if not, why or why not? This is Bruce Bennett. Let me uh, take on the, the second question. Um, the current Chinese proposal on the table is that the uh, North Koreans stop their missile and nuclear tests, uh, and in exchange, the U.S. and South Korea stop their military exercises. 
if you look at that and think about the realities that go on in Korea, that's an extraordinarily biased proposal. Uh, North Korea also does extensive exercises for invading South Korea, and the U.S. and South Korean exercises for defending South Korea are needed in response to what North Korea does. In fact, North Korea does usually several months of winter training exercises, preparing so that by the March time frame, which is roughly optimal for invasion of South Korea, given weather and such, they are ready and their troops are maximally trained. And so it's no surprise that uh, the U.S. and South Korea do a major exercise in March to prepare its for their forces to respond should North Korea decide out of surprise to turn the exercise into an invasion. So the key here is that the Chinese proposal needs to be balanced. It needs to say we will trade U.S. and ROC exercises for North Korean exercises and for North Korean missile and nuclear tests. Um, that's the kind of trade that might be considered anything short of that in the terms of the current uh, proposal. It's hard to imagine why the U.S. would ever accept that because of the vulnerability it would give. The exercises are major ways of training our people, getting them ready to operate, uh, and we don't want to allow North Korea to do all of their training to prepare their people and not have our people ready. Um, this is J.D. Williams. I, I, I certainly agree with Bruce. Um, you know, the, the idea of you know, the, the getting the South Koreans and the Americans to stop doing these big reinforcement exercises has been one of the, you know, one of the North's big goals. Um, and, you know, to do so, as Bruce said, would be, you know, disproportional, um, to what, uh, to what the North is doing, um, and, and rewarding bad behavior. Um, that said, um, I, you know, your, to your first question, what to expect? Um, you don't want to sound like it's, you know, just more of the same, uh, because we, you know, we really can't tell. Um, but, um, th there will certainly be some reaction, um, you, it, on the high end, it could be and, and would not be unexpe unexpected under the current circumstances, um, to see, uh, some kind of alerts in North Korea. Uh, perhaps a big exercise of their own kind of in response, um, and, um, you know, a demonstration type of, of missile uh, event, um, which is distinguished from a test, um, thing where you've got a new system that they're, you know, they're clearly both showing and trying to perfect, um, the, you know, kind of thing like salvo launches of the existing systems. Um, I, I thought those are more of a demonstration like the, the five scuds that were fired earlier this year. And th this is, uh, Andrew Scobie, throwing my two cents about the, the Chinese proposal. I think it is a false equivalent, even though the Chinese argue that it's uh, a balanced one. Here, I think the Chinese fundamentally recognize that that's not a viable proposal. I mean, in other words, the U.S. is not going to or South Korea is not going to bite on this. So why is, why is China doing this? I think it's doing it uh, to try and remain uh, relevant or appear relevant, responsible, and even-handed. And relevant, uh, it seems like it's a showdown between the U.S. And, and North Korea, although there are other parties involved, most notably South Korea, obviously, but, al but also China. So China's trying to appear relevant um, without, w without having, uh, at, at no cost, uh, uh, 
to itself um, through this proposal, trying to be uh, trying to be the reasonable one, because from Beijing's perspective, it's uh, the U.S. and North Korea that are both being unreasonable and uh, escalating tensions. And so China again is trying to come across as the as the responsible uh, party. Also, uh, North Korea they don't trust anyone, any outsiders, uh, and even though uh, China is the closest thing they've got to an ally, Pyongyang does not trust uh, Beijing. So this is also an attempt by Beijing to signal that it is trying to be even-handed uh, on, on this front. So it ain't going anywhere, this proposal, uh, but it's important for posturing purposes for, for China to do this. Thank you, J.D., Bruce, and Andrew. Um, would anyone else like to pose a question? Yes, our next question comes from line of Margaret Carrero with CBS Radio Los Angeles. Please proceed with your question. Thank you, gentlemen, for um, for hosting this call. There was a lot of talk earlier about um, negotiations, bringing North Korea to the table. Um, what, in your perspective, might those look like, and what really will it take to convince Pyongyang to pull back its efforts? And do you foresee them doing that? Well, unless one of my colleagues wants to start, this is Bruce Bennett. I'll uh, start on this. Uh, North Korea has been pretty clear that they have no intention of giving up their nuclear weapons. Uh, they point to the case of Libya and they say that, uh, that Gaddafi agreed to give up his weapons of mass destruction, perceiving that he had a U.S. security guarantee that would protect him in place of the weapons of mass destruction. But when rebels rose up against him, the U.S. Uh, actually provided airstrikes in support of the rebels, and uh, therefore you can't uh, you can't count on the U.S. to make commitments that will stand by. Uh, they need to have nuclear weapons as their uh, regime survival mode. Um, so it's difficult to imagine North Korea giving them up completely. Giving up something less is a possibility. And one of the problems we've been facing with North Korea is we regularly ask them to uh, take actions which are eminently reversible. Uh, so we asked them to close the Yongbyon nuclear plant, and several years later, they open it back up again. Uh, we're now talking about asking North Korea for a freeze. Well, a freeze is something they could implement this month, and next month they could take it off the table and, and return to the program. So in some ways, we need to be looking for things that we can ask them to do that are irreversible. Uh, there's no perfect option there. But the one that I tend to like is uh, the notion of asking North Korea to give up something like five or maybe even ten nuclear weapons. Um, this might actually, interestingly, be attractive to them if they are asked to give them to the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, because if they did and they really worked and they really were miniaturized, the IAEA would likely say that, and that would give North Korea a basis for claiming they really are a nuclear power. Um, and certainly if they have 30 or 50 or so nuclear weapons, as some are claiming, they ought to feel comfortable doing something of that magnitude. Um, and in exchange, from our perspective, we would actually get rid of some number of weapons from North Korea, and we would gain tremendous uh, intelligence information. So that's the kind of thing that I would tend to be looking for. I am not expecting them to say, sure, we'll go to zero. I just don't think that will happen. Uh, this is Andrew Skill. I think I uh, totally agree w with Bruce. And the other question here is, uh, you know, 
uh, well, first, what, what's realistic? And, and, and I think Bruce has teased that out very well. The other is, where do you start? If we re-engage in negotiations of the uh, uh, North Koreans, do we start again from square one? I mean, there's, there's a series of agreements, including those negotiated the six-party talks, that uh, are we going to pretend they just didn't don't exist? Um, they were never never signed. In other words, if we don't watch it, uh, this is we're going to start all over again. And it's going to, A, it's going to take a long time and we're going to renegotiate what we already, uh, what we already negotiated. Or the alternative is to begin, uh, try and, uh, try and restart or, or resume where we left off and, and revisit these agreements. And they may have to be tweaked. They may have to, because, uh, when the six party talks were in, in session, uh, North Korea wasn't a de facto nuclear power. Uh, but to start all over again as if, uh, as if this is the first ever negotiations is, uh, I'm not sure is a fruitful way, uh, to move forward. Well, if JD doesn't have anything else to add to that, uh, do we have another question, um, from our participating media on the line? Yes, our next question comes line of Deb Richman from Associated Press. Please proceed with the question. North Korea experts appear to have lower estimates on the number of nuclear weapons or the number of nuclear weapons that they could make um, than, say, the intelligence community. And what are your estimates, and why do you think the IC's estimates are so much higher? And then secondly, not knowing how many they have, does this make it more difficult for... U.S. policymakers. Bruce, do you want to try that? I'll be happy to try that. I think the bottom line is we really don't know how many nuclear weapons they have. Even the estimates we see, while people will say they might have 10 or 30 nuclear weapons, what they really mean is they may have the fizzle material, the key nuclear material for 10 to 30 nuclear weapons, but not that they actually have 10 to 30 nuclear weapons because you know, other than the nuclear weapon that Kim Jong-un, in theory, displayed to public, which probably was just a mock-up, um, we've never really seen a North Korean nuclear weapon that I'm aware of. So we're estimating, we're guessing, and that leaves a lot of room for differences. Having said that, I've looked at the latest estimates by people like Dr. Sig Hecker, former director of Los Alamos, so very knowledgeable individual, Dr. David Albright, also very knowledgeable. They tend to start with an estimate that says, well, it's possible that the only uranium enrichment plant is the one at Yongbyon, the one that Dr. Hecker was shown in November of 2010. Uh, but Dr. Hecker at that time was very clear that there was no way they could have set up that plant uh, without having another plant somewhere else as a precursor to it. Because as I remember it, he had been in the same building two years before and it had had a totally different purpose. And in two years, they had transformed it into this huge uranium enrichment facility. And he said there's just no way they could have done that unless they had at least that size capability somewhere else with that kind of experience putting such a thing together. Now, so if you transition to saying, well, then maybe there's at least two facilities, the one at Yongbyon and one somewhere else, the South Korean press have for a long time said, actually, we think there are probably three or four uranium enrichment facilities. 
So great number of a uh, great deal of uncertainty about the number of facilities that are making uh, nuclear materials. Um, and that's really very problematic for us to then make an estimate. Um, that takes me back to my notion of if we could get North Korea to surrender a few weapons, we might learn a little bit about how they're actually making them, where they may be making them. And another question we have is, are they only working with nuclear materials they've produced on their own, or were they able to buy some from foreign sources? Um, we just really don't know. Does it make a difference? Absolutely. If North Korea only has a small number of nuclear weapons, one or two or three, um, they're not likely going to be brandishing them early in a conflict. They likely would keep them for ultimate regime survival. But if they really have something in the 30-plus range, uh, they are almost certainly, given the crisis instabilities that would likely develop, um, they're almost certainly going to consider early use of nuclear weapons in a conflict. Uh, you may not be aware of it, but the South Koreans have what they call their kill chain, which is a counterforce capability, a capability to try to destroy the North Korean nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. And the South Koreans almost always talk about their kill chain as being a preemptive capability, but when you listen to the rhetoric, it's preventive. It is, if we see certain actions happening, we better launch our attack because they may be able to disperse out from under us and prevent us from being effective. Um, and the North Koreans have responded to that kind of uh, discussion by saying, well, if you try to preempt us, we will preempt you. Um, that's a very dangerous crisis situation, which we should be trying to avoid. Um, and it leads to the North Koreans feeling in the classical nuclear literature, like in from the beginning of a conflict, they would be in a use it or lose it position. Um, and that's really not where we want uh, things to be for stability. Why do you think uh, the... In, why do you think... Jay, I'd just like to add a little, you know, just a, a slight disagreement with my colleague on the, on the, you know, the effect of the numbers. I think even the low end estimates, um, in the, the teens and twenties, um, give, uh, give Kim and the regime, uh, what they need. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, the high end numbers, um, create all that much difference other than um, again, making it making it harder if you know if anyone was to think about preempting. Um, the more numbers you have to deal with, the more difficult the problem becomes, um, and it you know kind of would would allow um, from a deterrent perspective, uh, Kim to say, well, not only can I threaten um, you know South Korea and Japan with with a dozen weapons, I can also you know have a dozen or two dozen more to to spread in other in other places. But I think the you know the real important fact is they've tested five devices, which shows they certainly have they almost certainly have an inventory um, you know in uh, in that in that area ten to twenty that that gives them the deterrent capability that they need. 
And, and I don't think that J.D. and I really disagree at all. I also think that numbers in the in the teens allow them a great deal of flexibility, but it's much easier to make that case with the larger number and say they're not going to hold all of those. They're going to use at least some of them almost certainly early on. I'm sorry, did you have a follow-up on question on, on that? The only follow-up I had was um, the IC estimate seems to be so much higher than the uh, the ones being, you know, written about by the North Korean experts around the country. You know, I think theirs were up to 60, and a lot of the experts we've spoken with are surprised by the higher number. Well, the the, the estimates by Dr. Hecker or Dr. Albright uh, are estimates that would suggest that at maximum there are two uranium enrichment in North Korea. Um, I haven't seen any estimates uh, by the scientists that go beyond that. I have no idea what creates the uh, intelligence community estimates, but one could imagine that if there were more facilities, um, that could lead to something more. One could imagine that there's underestimates of the capacity of the existing facilities. Uh, so there are various reasons that could lead it to happen that don't know what they are. Um, and in fact, uh, the reports I've seen from the IC community, I'm not sure that there's even consensus there. It, it, you know, we, we just don't have uh, a, an excellent estimate that would tell us the numbers that we could be confident in. So, so this is JD. Um, obviously, I can't talk about um, you know insights that I had you know in my previous position. But but what I will say is um, there is a very careful methodology now that's applied um, when making those estimates, and there's also um, explanations of confidence level and, and caveats that would go with it. And if you don't have access to the whole explanation, you only you know what is leaked out or what is released is a is just the number itself. Um, it's hard to contextualize. Um, there may well you know there may be some you know significant intelligence information that you know is not available that that supports that estimate. Um, or there may be um, there may be some assumptions underlying that, or the confidence level in that may not be very high. So, without actually seeing the you know the logic behind the numbers, it's, it's difficult to say why that number is is different. Um, I would just say that the community um, and my colleagues, you know, my colleagues in the past that are in that business, understand you know the importance of. Uh, being very careful with their methodology and how they convey um, their their assessments. Well, thank you for your responses. Is there anyone else on the line that would like to uh, pose a question? I do have a follow-up question from the line of James Drew with Aviation Week. Please proceed with the question. Yeah, hi, uh, James here. Um, another question that I had following on from the F-35 question earlier. J.D., I think you mentioned the uh, KN-06. Um, the uh, surface-to-air missile that they have. Um, one of the things that uh, uh, was done during the Cold War by both the U.S. and Russia was to use nuclear weapons as a counter-air capability. Um, we had the Genie, and then uh, even today, Russia has uh, over 60 nuclear-tipped um, interceptors uh, around Moscow that will protect their airspace 
in the event of a uh, of an airstrike. Um, is this a capability that you expect uh, North Korea to pursue um, as a way of gaining some sort of asymmetric advantage? That's yeah, that's an that's an interesting idea. Um, you know, you, you kind of forgotten about the you know the old the, the Russian the old Soviet um, intercept capability on the nuclear, although the Russians tended to put you know tended to and and in fact still do put nukes on, on a, a whole lot of other things, a whole lot of uh, weapons and systems. Um, I think in line with with the discussion that Bruce and I had uh, to the previous questions. Um, you know, initially, I don't think that's how, um, how North Korea would, would employ a limited number of nuclear weapons. Um, however, um, if the estimates around the high side of the inventory are there, uh, are, are, are accurate and they have more weapons to apply to different applications, um, that's something probably within the realm of, of possibility. Um, so it, it would, you know, they have not invested a lot in um, air defense and surface-to-air missiles. Um, the, the system that they have is kind of the first thing that is really a more modern, you know, attempted to, to do some of that modernization. So they probably have work to do in, in that realm. Um, so I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't expect to see that as a near-term uh, capability. But um, should the, you know, should the system, you know, start to uh, improve at least through testing and they have enough uh, nuclear weapons it's it's a strong it's a possibility um, given the the threat that they face is there a last question that anyone would like to pose from our participating media today I do have another question it comes line of Margaret Carrero with CBS radio Los Angeles Please proceed to question. Thank you again. Just one more quick question. J.D., I, I, I hopped on the call a little bit early this morning, hoping that you could just uh, maybe summarize your remarks with regard to the seriousness of this threat that the U.S. faces from North Korea. I know throughout the uh, conversation today you've talked about they've not yet uh, demonstrated the ability to send a nuclear warhead on an ICBM, but you really, what's really surprising and concerning is the number of systems that are under development and the pace at which they're advancing them. If you could just summarize uh, your comments you made uh, at the onset of the call, I'd appreciate it. Okay. Um, so overall, um, the, the pace the numbers, the technology that North Korea is demonstrating in its missile programs indicate um, that those missile programs constitute a significant threat. Um, certainly right now, um, almost it, it's very likely that they have the capability to put a nuclear warhead on a short-range system um, that would you know, range South Korea, probably Japan, um, and the developments that we've seen in their testing on the intermediate and the intercontinental missiles um, indicate that they are approaching the point where those systems are, you know, will be reliable and will be able to range throughout the region and potentially reach uh, some of the United States. Um, the, what we have not seen at this point is um, a, a deliverable uh, payload survivable, deliverable payload that can go out to ICBM range. Um, however, if you are a U.S. Uh, policymaker, if you are a U.S. Uh, part of the U.S. military um, that is charged with defending against those kinds of threats, um, you, you, cannot, you cannot discount um, that they've, even if they haven't demonstrated it, that that capability exists. So as you know, most of the experts would say at this point, 
Um, it's unlikely that the North Koreans could reliably deliver a nuclear warhead on a missile to, you know, to the United States. Um, there's still a, there's still a possibility. And what we've seen in the, in the very recent, you know, in the, over the course of this year is they're making much more, much more significant and rapid strides, um, in the development of these programs than they've been able to do in the, you know, the previous decades that they've been trying to do this. Thank you. Well, I'd like to thank you, uh, everyone, for joining us today on, on this call, and I'd like to thank our participants, Bruce Bennett, Andrew Scobell, and J.D. Williams. And with that, have a wonderful day. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.